Hey everybody, welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Damien Pizzanti, Katie Gillespie is MIA. Well, that's not entirely true. She's not MIA. She's actually in Colorado going to a conference where she's learning some great new tools of the trade in journalism. Uh, even though we're one host short, we're still going to have a really good show today, I think, because we're going to continue focusing on the state politics and also shine a spotlight on what's going on in Vancouver as well. You probably know that the 2017-2016 legislative session, also known as the Olympia Dumpster Fire, has officially burned out. And we are now sifting through the ashes to figure out what we got and what we didn't. You know, on one hand, education has been passed, as we have talked about on the show several times. But what we didn't get this year was a capital budget. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and then also just get some good feedback from Jake Thomas about how our local representatives are feeling about the whole thing. Following that, we're going to sit down with the the Colombian's powerful intern, uh, Will Campbell, who is covering the city's politics right now. And we're going to talk about some of the really interesting developments that have been happening on that beat lately. And before I forget, we're going to talk with Ashley Swanson, who will give us a lowdown on the cool events coming up in the next couple weeks. So now we're sitting down with the Colombian state government reporter, uh, Jake Thomas. And he and I are going to talk a little bit about... Oh, man, I hate to say that we're still going to be talking about it, but we're going to talk about the state legislature. We're going to be talking about it for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I said at the top of the show that now the dumpster fire has officially burnt itself out and we are rummaging through the smoldering ashes with a stick to find what is left. You had a story just, what, last week that sort of gave uh, the impressions of how our local delegation felt about getting the session done. and. I mean, it sounded like they were they sort of walked out of there on a high note. Yeah, it sounded like they were working working together very well. Um, they touted a lot of accomplishments, a lot of funding that uh, that they got for projects in the transportation budget. Uh, there's also some uh, positive things in the operating budget, um, such as a tax break for uh, semiconductors, which supports um, some high tech industries around here. Yeah, well, like more specifically, like wafer tech hub in Canvas, right. right? Yeah, so there's there's some good stuff in there. Um, the however the, the big thing that everybody's concerned about is that they were really and I, I talked to multiple almost everyone from the legislative delegation from Clark County and they all almost all of them said that the capital budget was the big win that they got a lot of really great funding for a lot of really great projects in Clark County but the capital budget didn't get passed <laughs> yeah yeah it would have been a great win for Clark County had it gone through but this is one of the poor victims of political party infighting and uh, just the breakdown of the political process right right so there's billions of dollars that uh, would have gone towards state construction projects that aren't going to get funded in the next biennium. And it sounds like Clark County is certainly not immune to that. Right. Well, they could get funded. The governor has indicated that he'd be willing to call uh, lawmakers back for a fourth special session if they have everything lined up. He, it sounds like this could be just a one-day session that, they want, that he wants legislative leaders to get everything lined up, get every deal brokered, and essentially just call lawmakers in for, it sounds like a quick special session, just to have a vote. Like, to show up to, like, show up to vote and leave. Show up to vote and leave. And there's two uh, sticking points. Wow. There's the, well, there's the capital budget, which sounds like that could pass, but what's holding it up is the Hearst decision. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Hearst decision, it's the Supreme Court case, uh, decision, the state Supreme Court uh, decision that came out last year, mm -hmm. and it really restricted growth in uh, a lot of rural 
rural areas. It said the counties needed to determine that uh, the, the uh, permanent exempt wells had adequate um, access to water. Mm-hmm. And that's really made it hard for a lot of people to build in rural areas that relied on these uh, these wells. Well, that's been like the big fight, right? So yeah, I mean, this was a decision that came out of uh, Whatcom County. And basically, the, the Supreme Court said that the county wasn't doing enough to adequately protect water resources. And um, yeah, that's that's been the big gripe, especially among rural uh, rural politicians, is that in those places where they're not con- connected to city water or like a municipal water supply, they have to drill a well. And you know, if effectively, construction has stopped because nobody wants to drill a well right now. Right. So I mean, it has affected some counties more than others. I mean, Whatcom County has taken a lot of measures. Uh, they passed some ordinances that have restricted this type of development. I believe mm-hmm. Spokane County has as well. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, here in Clark County, it really hasn't affected things very much. I've been in contact with uh, county officials, and none of them have said that it's really had a, a an appreciable impact on development in Clark County. And they're really taking a wait-and-see approach. Now, do you think that that's because um, a lot of new development is connecting straight into a municipal water supply? And Because we have a pretty good network of that around here. Or is it more so that the county knows where all the water is at and um, we just they just have a good knowledge of what the groundwater supply is like well it's, I'm, not, I'm still trying to get a handle on it and, and this could end up affecting the, the county every the, I think the county's taking a wait-and-see approach right now sure uh, I mean certainly if, if they don't have to rely on these permanent exempt wells and mm-hmm. can connect to uh, you know the city water then that's mm-hmm. that that would help mm-hmm but um, but yeah, we do have more water than a place like, say, you know, out east. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, it, it, as I understand it, the, sort of the way like the whole process broke down is the Republicans, the Senate Republicans, basically wanted to undo the court's decision. They wanted to create a bill that basically, you know, uh, just sort of skirted the Supreme Court's decision and move on. Whereas the House Democrats wanted to create a short term, like a two year solution, and then come together and work out like a longer, more adequate fix later on. Well, adequate in their minds, more adequate. And um, between the two of those, like, you know, neither party shall meet. Right. Well, the the, the fix that was supported by the governors, there was a bill that would have uh, had a two-year delay, essentially, 24 mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. And there's one guy, he kind of became a poster child for Hearst, a guy named uh, Zach Nutting. He was... Uh, oh, man, his videos are all over the social media yeah, right now. Yeah, like he suddenly he bought a house, uh, mm-hmm. he, or he bought land to build a house, he had five kids, and he mm-hmm. intended to build there, but then Hearst came down and he was effectively homeless. Like mm-hmm. his family was effectively homeless because of the decision. He There's a video of him on the governor's website of him supporting the 24-month fix. Mm-hmm. He said that would be adequate, but a lot of rural communities have said that 24 months just is 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 not going to work because they, they're they going to have a hard time planning mm-hmm. for future growth. Sure, sure. Huh. I'm sure there is truth on both sides. You know, what is amazing to me is how this has turned into such a passive-aggressive slap fest on social media between the two parties. I mean, it's just like, it, it's hilarious to see them make these like direct or these indirect jabs at each other. And I don't know if you saw, but on Monday, did you see that tweet that the Senate Republicans sent out that... Uh, rural landowners in Washington have, I think the News Tribune was the first one to report on this, but anyway, it was a tweet that rural landowners um, basically have a human right to uh, water and uh, the certainty of a permanent fix. And what they attached to this was like a quote, it literally was a quote that the United Nations General Assembly voted in 2010 to recognize the, the right to safe and clean drinking water as a human right. And th- that like 
that grabbed a lot of attention because that's meant to address like the some odd 884 million people in developing nations that don't have access to safe water, period. Hmm. So, yeah, they're, and then they deleted the tweets soon after they were called out on it by the reporter that covered the story. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because there's... Yeah, I'm sure there's so many people in, in Washington State that are going thirsty. Yeah, that are literally dying of thirst or dysentery from yeah. their terrible water supplies. Anyway, so the reason why we're talking about the Hearst decision to begin with because, is because this is the straw that broke the camel's back of the capital budget, right? Right. Everybody wanted the capital budget. Everybody loved the capital budget. Everybody across the state was going to get good stuff. The capital budget's not. usually the easiest thing to pass. Yeah. Everybody gets something out of it. And I think that's probably why they're holding it up, because they got... Um, because they they got they knew that everybody wanted it and so they knew that that was the one thing that they could they could hold up. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, Ann Rivers, a, a senator from a Republican senator from the center, she mm -hmm. was on the podcast uh, a little while ago and she was saying that the Republican leadership was really upfront at the beginning of the session that that they wanted to fix to Hearst that this is a really really important thing for their constituency and she said that the the other side shouldn't be surprised that they didn't back down from this. Mm -hmm. hmm. There's yeah I I don't disagree with that um i don't know this is it's, it's so it's so interesting because i can really see both sides of it like from a rural planning department that really depends on like those developing fees and really needs to lay a plan for you know every government wants to think long term of how they're going to develop stuff i can understand them not wanting to wait and have two years of uncertainty right it's not helpful especially if you're in the building industry but then at the same time, it's also like I think there's some legitimacy to a concern that like if there are too many wells, like could that like run afoul of treaties that we have with tribes, and could that lead to a whole other court case down the road? Right, that's one of the concerns. And uh, future-wise, their argument, one of their central arguments about the Hearst decision, and they're the Seattle-based land use group mm -hmm. that litigated the Hearst decision in, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But they their argument all along has been that it's really just good consumer protection to make sure that if you're going to allow a house to be built, it ought to have legal and actual access to water which doesn't sound that unreasonable on its face doesn't sound that unreasonable but then mm. you end up with people like zach nutting who is effectively homeless yeah totally totally because of this well yeah because i mean on that that idea sounds great until you realize there's like there's a whole system that needs to be required to make that a reality and that system is not in place right Anyway, we're totally getting aside again. Can we talk a little bit about what was lost in the capital budget this session? What was session? lost? Well, it's not. It's or not what is it's what been, is in the wind? We should what's, say it's in the wind. I it's there's um so I, I have this spreadsheet from OFM, uh -huh. uh, Clark County. According to this uh, OFM, the 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 Senate bill, which is the most recent um, uh, iteration of this bill, mm -hmm. uh, it uh, has fifty million in new appropriations and then another uh, thirty-five million dollars um, um, in alternate financing, which basically just financing for uh, Clark, a, a facility that Clark County was working on. Mm -hmm. And appropriations is literally just means money. That is just like, means money. Yeah, but Clark County was going to get thirty. Was going to be authorized to have thirty-five million dollars for uh, for a new facility. Um, wow. Now is that like the whole county? Like that much money is going would have gone into the county or might be going to the county? Just generally speaking, like that's all the projects totaled up together. Yeah, that's uh, for Clark County, according to the spreadsheet I have from OFM. Gotcha. And so, I mean, within that, there's a few big things, right? Like Daybreak Youth Center, and then like dental clinic grants for CMAR, streetlights. A lot of stuff for Vancouver. A lot of stuff. Streetlights for Vancouver. You have uh, Washington State University had a life sciences building. Mm -hmm. um, there's also uh, the big one was Bridgeview. They uh, were supposed to get a uh, several grants to to for their um, 
for the Education Employment Resource Center. There's 700,000 for that, and then there was another 500. Um, it was another 500,000 uh, for the for the, the same center. Hmm. So it's a total of 1.2 million. And uh, Patty Hastings, our social services reporter, she had an article earlier this week uh, about the uh, about this project. And it sounds and she's re- quotes uh, Representative Sharon Wiley saying that the, they're beginning construction on the on it as an act of faith. Hmm. And their uh, the faith she writes is placed in the state legislature, which will need to pass a capital budget that includes the money for the project. Wow, that is that's a lot of faith. Yeah, so huh. I, there's a lot riding on it, and everybody, you know, again across the straight state, there's projects that's going to benefit everyone. So there's a lot of pressure for lawmakers to come together and come to some sort of uh, resolution to this impasse. Totally. Well, I mean, even even beyond the borders of Clark County, like uh, the Department of Natural Resources (DNR) is very concerned about this whole thing because they are really afraid that they're not going to have the ability to do any fi- do fire prevention work. Like they were asking for fifteen million dollars to uh, take out like sick or fire damaged trees out of the forests. They say there are two point seven million acres of tree or forests that are filled with dead or diseased trees, and that whole idea, you know. Fire prevention is right. what they so, wanted that for. I mean, if we have a bad wildfire season, they'll prompt legislators to get get back to Olympia. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully they will go back to work if there's a massive fire. But, you know, at that point, it might be too late. Right. And uh, there's like a billion dollars worth of uh, school construction money that's on hold in this from around the state. I read an article the other day that in Chehalis, they have two schools, one which is under construction from previous monies, and then a local, another one that they want to build. And they were asking for $25 million to finish the first and start the second. But they can't do that right now because there's no capital budget to support it. So these buildings, like one is just sitting there and then the other one is just just waiting. In the meantime, kids are going back to school soon. So, right. man, it is a fiasco. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Have you talked to anybody in the last... I, I mean, you spent a lot of time uh, in the weeks leading up to the end of the session talking to our, the delegation. Have you talked to any of them since about the capital budget? Like, is there any indication of give one way or another that you've seen? Not yet. I, I, I probably will be following up with them uh, this week or the next week and trying to figure out what's going on with that. Uh-huh. I mean, we, we are supposed to have an editorial board meeting with them next week. So I think that's with the Republicans uh, from the legislative delegation. So it'll be interesting to hear what they think. Yeah. I really, you know, this is like, this is a question of like, who's going to blink first? And it really seems like in previous budget negotiations, I'm sure somebody could counter this, but it seems like the Senate Republicans really hold a lot of sway and really seem to win out these like these long drawn out battles over things. Right, because so, that's their that's what they do, and that's their only point of leverage. That's the only chamber in state government that controls the Senate. They don't control the House. They don't control the governor's mansion. No, but by like holding out like that, like they're getting what they want party wide. So, and you know, the thing I think of is like the levy swap thing with the fu- education funding. I mean, that was a Republican idea. Right. And th- they got it. And so. the interesting thing, the thing that could happen is after the next <clears throat> next election, there's one Senate seat in play that could uh, return uh, control of the Senate to Democrats. Is that the one up on the east side in the King County? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, the election there. It's attracted a lot of attention, a lot of money, and it could uh, end up flipping control of the the Senate back to Democrats. Interesting. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how that race shakes out. Uh, there's a great article in the Seattle Times, without going too deep into things, 
but there was a great article in the Seattle Times just a couple days ago by Joe O'Sullivan, who is just a and Justin Mayow, uh, both of which are great reporters, about all the outside money that's been pouring into this thing. And so far, it's been more than $2.2 million has been thrown into the 45th legislative district race. So that's going to be something not only Washington residents are keeping their eye on, but definitely a lot of, uh, <laughs> as politics has tend to go, definitely a lot of national interest in it as well. Indeed. Yeah. Um, well, anything else we need to talk about? No. I so I, I guess we'll just wait and see. Um, I can't imagine that they'll actually convene a fourth session, but you know, <gasps> it would be great if they did. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there waiting for money that would be very There's happy to see that There's all kinds of pressure. Happen. Otherwise, Bridgeview, hopefully Bridgeview will happen. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Jake. Thank you. All right. So for a local a local look at things, we are going to be talking with the Colombian's uh, new intern, Will Campbell. Is He's the new guy covering the city politics, at least for the summer. And, man, you hit the ground running with some pretty big stories that have been coming out of the city beat lately. And Yeah, I, I jumped into the beat um, just as, you know, these elections are heating up. Yeah, yeah. So, um and ours, I think our city beat, it's not that it, um, the person that was covering it before you, I mean, you've heard this, I think, from a thousand people, but I'm going to tell the listeners, because they haven't, uh, the person that was covering our city politics was also covering our state politics, which was sucking all the air out of the room, and so there was so much stuff going on on the city that I think kind of flew under the radar. So I'm personally very happy to see that we have somebody back dedicated to the city level, city level issues. Yeah, and it's it's a good beat. I've I've had fun with it. Everyone yeah. is is pretty nice, and um, mm. it, it, there isn't a lot of a lot of bad, you know, bad blood or tension or anything. So it's yeah. I I've been I've been happy, and people have been very kind. The city folks seem to be pretty easy to work with, at yeah. least in my experience. Yeah, hey, I've been impressed with our our city government overall. Yeah, but speaking of city government, I mean, there have been a few big things going on lately. I mean, like the Timbers investing in that new futsal field. Well, potentially. Investing a new futsal field here in town. Uh, there's a chicken ban. I mean, there's the city politics. Where, where do you want to start? What should we talk about first? Well, I think one of the bigger stories lately is this uh, ban on chickens that the city council just enacted. Um, so basically, they they already have a limit on dogs, and a, a residential property can only have three dogs. So if if you mm. live in the city of Vancouver, you can. The max is three. So what if you're like, what if you're breeding your dogs? Are you like suddenly in violation if you have a litter of puppies? No, that because because the dogs have to be under a, a six months old. Oh, I believe. Okay. So you can do that. Also, if you want to start um, sort of a, a dog um, shelter or uh-huh. something like that, then you, you can go through this process to. But if you want to run a puppy three. mill, it's going to be a lot harder for you to get a permit, I'm assuming. It is. It yeah. is. It is. So, is this is this permit? So this ban, this limit has already been in place. The dog limit has been in place for a while. Okay. But there's no limit on caster chickens. Gotcha. Huh. Or rabbits. Or rabbits. So you can have a lot of. So you might not get to have a puppy chickens. mill, but you could have like a, a factory farm or a a cat a kitten mill. I mean, that's what they're trying to avoid. Yeah. So. So what's the what's it look like now? What's what did they pass and? Well, they haven't passed anything because um, they're trying to rework it because there's some of these little intricacies like should they grandfather in this rule? So if you have six chickens right now, then you could potentially be able to have six chickens the rest of your life, or if you have fifty chickens now, then potentially 
if you if this rule is grandfathered in, then you could have chickens, 50 chickens the rest of your life. Interesting. So there's these finer points they're trying to work out, but mm-hmm. um, it's really just trying to prevent animal hoarding. Yeah, which is, I mean, that is a real thing. It is. Those stories don't make the news often, but when they do, there are a few things as sad to see as like the photos of, you know, like law enforcement hauling out animals by the dozens yeah. that are usually covered in their own filth. Right. Hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but what is our urban farm situation like? Do we have farms in the city limits? So I talked, as part of the story, I talked to this woman who is an urban micro farmer. Oh, really? And she has five beehives. She has five chickens now. And she has this whole garden that's just available to passersby. And it's really, it's an an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. But um, we, we definitely have people within the city limits who are... Um, trying to get this whole urban micro farming thing going. Yeah, for sure. So apparently the eggs taste a lot better than in the stores. I can vouch. Honey is, I I can personally say that honey that you don't buy in the stores that you get just from your own farm or Mm -hmm. it's just a world of difference. Interesting. Interesting. So I think a a lot more people are realizing that. So were they getting, um, when this first came up, after this came up, did the city get some pushback on this idea? I mean, obviously a well-intended bill, but yeah, was there opposition? Was there resistance? Yeah, because the city was going to, they were going to pass the ordinance without figuring out how to enforce it. People were upset that they were going to do that because there's just too much leeway in order to enforce this thing. So it sounds like the details of what this is actually going to look like are to be determined. And this is not going to be the last time you write about uh, chickens and chickens, birds and bunnies, rabbits. Rabbits. Yeah. yeah. Are they rabbits are included in this new one? They are. Okay. Yeah. I've been eagerly uh, checking the papers to see what this thing is gonna unfold in. Mm-hmm. I really want to talk to you about the top shelf bar. Yeah. So um I mean I think for anybody that doesn't know, this is a bar in downtown Vancouver, right? And like what beats like outdoor seating in the summertime, especially if you're a place like that on like a great southwest Washington summer evening. So these, I'm, tell me, like, jump in here at any point. But as I understand it, they wanted to have some outdoor seating and jump through all the hoops that they had to go through to make it. And then that's when the trouble started. Right. So Darren Morgan is the owner of Top Shelf. And he's he'd been wanting to build this outdoor seating. You know, it, it, it allows you to expand your business, especially in the summertime. He finally got the opportunity. And he decided to do it when he had this... He finally got this opportunity when the Chamber of Commerce uh, gave him this consultant to give him ideas on how to improve his business. Mm -hmm. And so the consultant went through all the paperwork after she recommended that he do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, She got the paperwork filed and permitted, and Darren built his $10,000 custom steel brushed steel fence Mm -hmm. so for anybody that hasn't been down there this fence is like this it's about 12 by 12 feet gotcha some of the sidewalks in downtown vancouver are kind of funky and this Mm -hmm. is like on one of those corners where like the sidewalk itself like juts out further than the rest of the sidewalk right yeah because and he built into that space he built into the space and um basically if you're walking down the street you have to take a multiple turns to get around this thing Mm -hmm. Um, but it was approved and it complies with the Americans with Disabilities Act Mm -hmm. Um, I actually talked to someone today 
who was photographed by one of our photographers. She is in a wheelchair. She had been going around the structure when our photographer took a picture of her. Mm. So I was talking to her on the phone today. I wasn't able to make print, but mm-hmm. she said she wasn't bothered by it. So it's a non-issue, at least for her. For her. You know, People, I, I've walked by this thing a bunch of times, and, like, it is, it's kind of awkward to have, like, your, just, like, your walking path mm-hmm. cut off by this, like, fence kind of in the middle of nowhere, but, um, you know, at the same time, it's, like, it's it's a, mi- it's a mi- I would call it, like, a minor inconvenience for walking around, and if you, like, that's a place you like to hang out and drink, I'm sure it's great to get to sit outside. Right, but I think th- there are different sides of the issue here, and, um, you know, if there were a bunch of things a bunch of these type of structures on the city blocks and you were constantly having to weave in and out of them. Yeah. I think it could create kind of a, a, a mess. Yeah. I mean, if they're blocking out the sidewalks. Right. So what's the deal here? Um, I mean, the whole reason why we're talking about this is because the, the city might not renew his permit next year. Is that right? Right. And so Darren, he built this fence based on the permit that he received. And after he built it, some of the city officials came back and asked them to change it because it was just too awkward to to walk all the way around it. Mm-hmm. And basically, they've been working. The city officials have been working with the state uh, Washington Liquor Control Board. They've been trying to figure out how they can make a compromise, but nothing's been nothing's really been worked out yet. Well, because the the what is it the WCLLB Washington State liquor and cannabis board right i screwed up those two middle letters anyway they they require that you have like a fence around any place you're serving alcohol right i mean that's why we have like beer gardens and festivals right but in seattle there are exceptions you can go around so vancouver could potentially submit some sort of application to become a city where they wouldn't they have to like have an exception to the rule right they wouldn't have to have the um fencing what does what does seattle get to do I, they can just have seats out outside they don't have to have an entire enclosed area man again seattle just getting away with whatever the hell they want in this state (laughs) just more fuel for the anti-seattle fodder so um so they're trying to work out an agreement and it sounds like the liquor control board's not budging so this is again this is another to be determined it is. It's got to be frustrating as for this business owner to dump all that cash into this and have what's a great thing going for his customers and then, you know, have it up in the air all of a sudden. He said he's not planning on changing the structure. Oh, cool. So that was the last I heard of him. Interesting. Like, yeah. I mean, this is just me, but, like, I grew up in a town that didn't have a uh, an open container law forever. And then just, like, three years ago, they implemented one. And the city almost rioted. And so the city government finally tweaked it so that only between the hours of like four in the morning and eight in the morning was it illegal to have an open container on the streets. And that was like, that was a rough compromise. But I don't know. I think there's something to be said about like, why even necessarily have to have this fence around the whole thing anyways? Mm -hmm. But that's just me. Right. Well, and I think one thing I've learned in general since covering this beat is that Vancouver is it's growing and it's downtown is growing and it's becoming more and more like a downtown dense yeah sprawling city for sure and there the city council is moving in sort of that direction you could say um but not everybody really wants that and so Mm -hmm. i think vancouver is kind of caught in between this this uh, big time growing city and Mm -hmm. and just this 
uh, sort of safe environment where there's not a lot of bad things that happen. It's like city puberty or something right. like that. Yeah. I mean, really, I've, I've only lived, I haven't even lived here a full two years, and almost immediately that transition was obvious mm-hmm. to me. Where it's, it's still trying to create this, like, n- tight-knit community feel, but then at the same time, like, there are some real big city issues that are pro- approaching here. Things like parking and, like, um, it sounds like there used to be a nightlife downtown, and then that went away for a while, and now there's, like, a nightlife is creeping back, so... And this, you know, this is just one of those issues that's part of the whole thing. I think it is. Yeah. But, but, I mean, a lot of these restaurants downtown have started getting this permit for outdoor seating. And uh-huh. and everybody has liked the outdoor seating. I haven't talked to one person who said, I, did, I don't want any outdoor seating. Yeah. And what kind of customer doesn't want to sit right. outside if the weather's right? So, they're just, I, guess, I think they're, people are just trying to get on the same page with how do we go about this outdoor seating. Because this is the first one of its kind, right? Is it? No, that's probably not true because so, Low Bar has outdoor Low Bar seating. has one. So main event, actually, they had one, although they're doing uh, sidewalk maintenance. And so they had to um, take theirs out for during the meanwhile. But main events, outdoor seating areas, was made by the same person as Top Oh, shops. really? And they, they collaborated on that because they want they all want this sort of feeling this corridor so kind of be like i don't want to say like a nightlife district but sort of like a like a scene down there they're yeah. trying to create a bar scene right they want, they want their own scene which i get that yeah. I get they that. want people go filtering in and out of the bars and making the rounds and and i would rather do that the one thing i'm not into with vancouver is how like everything is in a strip mall mm-hmm. i don't want to drive from one strip mall to the next to go to a bar mm-hmm. man let me walk around a neighborhood with like 10 bars in them. right right that's just me for yeah. the record i haven't done that in like three years but that's how I feel if I'm going to go bar hopping. Yeah. So, like, the thing we have to keep in mind, though, like, low bars, outdoor seating is, like, that's, like, right against the building. It's, mm-hmm. like, what, two tables wide at the widest? Right. I don't remember what the, what the other bars looked like. Was that the same way? Or was it, was it like, this one where it, like, jutted out? Well, most of them don't have enough sidewalk to go more than one or two seat lengths yeah. into the sidewalk. Yeah, and where this guy is, I mean, it's like 10, what did you say, like 12 feet? Yeah, 12 feet. He had a lot of room to work with. Yeah. And so this is just such a, a unique scenario. It doesn't seem to be an issue for a lot of the other bars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. Mm-hmm. Good luck to that guy. Yeah. Can we talk a little about the futsal field? Yeah, the that, futsal field. Yeah, I really, I have no idea what futsal even, I didn't know what that was until you told me about it. Yeah, so it's it's sort of this, it's this South American version of soccer. And it's... it's <laughs> Which is already like one of the most South American games right. there is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, sort of a scaled down version of soccer. And you play with this basically the same rules, mm-hmm. except you have a smaller ball and it's weighted. And the field is smaller. And there are fewer people in the field. And it kind of allows this sort of gameplay to blossom that is really technical, fast-paced, quick movements Mm -hmm. with the ball. Sounds super footwork heavy. It's really footwork. And it's very tricky. It's 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 a little bit more entertaining to watch than rig, average regular soccer because huh. there's there's less just running and sprinting and sure. the ball is it's bouncing and darting around all 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 over. Gotcha. But uh, it's really exciting. So to this watch. is like this has got to be new to the U.S. Is it new? It, I've never heard of this before. It's it's really catching on in Portland. Portland has a lot of people. I actually played on Portland occasionally too. Oh, cool. So um, there are a couple 
futsal stadiums specifically for futsal hmm. uh, arenas in in portland but they d- have this whole culture down there where they have bars up top of the futsal courts oh that's cool. and they yeah you, and so you can go and just hang out there and so and this is it's Apparently, it might be making its way to Vancouver with a little bit of help from the Timbers. Right. And so the Timbers approach city councilors and sort of they asked city councilors to pick some locations that would be good for building a futsal field. And this wasn't at the city's solicitation. That was the Timbers coming to the city. Right. And the Timbers want to spend about $100,000 installing this arena. And then and then. I guess it's not really arena. It's, it's two courts, and it, it, it is geared towards kids too. Oh, they want to, they, wow. yeah, they want to kind of get kids involved and and um, build it in sort of a impoverished neighborhood and um, near a community center or near a school. Oh, cool! So they want to make it really appealing to kids. It's a positive thing that the Timbers are trying to do, and so that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, you know, it's funny because like soccer the world over is like that's. Everybody plays soccer, developing in like third world countries, developing nations, what have you, because all you need is a ball. Right. You need a ball on a floor and mm-hmm. a piece of dirt. Yep. And like, God, in the U.S., it's like if you don't have like the latest AstroTurf, like X, mil- X number of millions of dollars stadium, you're not playing. And then on top of that, like paying club dues just to get into it. It's become a rich suburban sport is what I'm trying to drive at. Soccer? Yeah. Yeah. Here in the U.S. I think for ki- for most kids coming up. But then here's a game like this where this this pro club is saying hey like we want to appeal back uh, appeal to these like lower income kids in your communities Mm -hmm. it's rad right i feel like it's it's sort of bringing the game back to what it's like original roots were that's what they're trying to do and soccer in general is really growing in the u.s yeah for sure so do you think it's ever gonna you think it's ever gonna reach like mls is ever gonna reach the popularity heights of let's say basketball or football or do you think it's more popular than hockey soccer yeah it depends on where. Yeah. It depends yeah. on where in the U.S. Yeah. So, I mean, in Portland and Seattle, soccer is one of the biggest sports, and it's becoming bigger in other cities. And kids who are now starting to, to get into their older ages, into their 30s, um, they've been growing up playing soccer because more people have been playing soccer as kids and... Um, it might have to do with the concussions from football. Mm-hmm. It might have to do with, um, I think it, it, it mostly has to do with how ex- how inexpensive soccer is. Yeah. And people have figured that out within the past 30 or so years. Mm-hmm. So if you're a parent, you'd probably want your kid to play soccer because it's less expensive, it's less dangerous, mm-hmm. and you don't you need as much equipment. Sure. Um, so And it's, it's just kind of easier to organize. I don't know why, but yeah... The- you just got me thinking about that. Like, I have obviously no, I no idea, uh, no way to explain like how soccer got so popular in the U.S. But yeah, it's like all the kids that grew up as soccer kids with soccer moms driving them around yeah. in minivans. Those are now becoming like soccer adults right. and having soccer kids. Uh-huh. You know, it's like it's a generational thing that is picked up. Exactly, and and so much of that culture uh, of of overseas soccer in England and Spain and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. That's really. A, those games are now being broadcast in the U.S. and and kids are now growing up with soccer idols, and that yeah, is a huge driver for kids trying to get better at that sport. Mm-hmm. If they can see the stars, then that's what they'll want to do, and they'll invest more time in that sport for sure. So, um, I guess back to, back to the field. What's the deal? What um, again? This is something that's a wait and see, right? Mm-hmm. What are we waiting for? 
Um, well, the Timbers do this thing, I think, once every year. They want to. They don't just want to throw in that money towards a, a, a sport that people, if the community doesn't want it. Mm-hmm. They want the people in Vancouver to want the futsal fields, the oh, futsal yeah. arena. They're, they want to see the, the kind of the community support. They want to see um, the locations that they could they could put the courts in. But um, they have a bunch of options in mm. por- in Vancouver and Portland. Mm. And so... So they're looking here and on the other side, too. So they're right. only going to... So are, Vancouver's competing against other cities for this? Other places in Portland and Gresham, yeah. Oh, Gresham? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Gresham's okay. already gotten a couple. Oh, wow. Um, so they... And I've only heard good things about them. Oh, cool. But, so basically, the city gives them... Gave them? Has the city already given them the like a list of places? Or do we even know that much yet? No, the city council is trying to figure out where... Uh, they're okay. trying to come up with this list of places and then present it to back to the Timbers. I see. And then the, if the Timbers like this idea enough, we very well could see some new futsal fields here we in could. town. We could. Are there any futsal fields in Vancouver now? So the only thing I came across was in the Salmon Creek indoor soccer. Um, so the only thing I came across was at the Salmon Creek indoor soccer arena. And they have tried to do uh, to create a futsal league for kids um, but they couldn't get enough traction. Oh, really? But they tried to create an entire league and, and charge money for that. Mm. Um, but um, there were some some things that were happening with trying to get that out into the public that I think may have hindered that from mm-hmm. starting. I mean, you're literally trying to start a sport off the bo- up from the ground up. Right. And so some of the people at Salmon Creek Indoor wanted to have this have futsal be a way for kids in the winter mm-hmm. to play so- soccer but ke- keeping that soccer mindset. Oh yeah. Because we have indoor soccer too, mm-hmm. but futsal is a lot closer to soccer than indoor soccer is to soccer. Really? Yeah. That's interesting to me. Right. Um so because indoor soccer you have the barriers all around. Oh sure. And that really kind and of affects. Like, like nothing is out, right? Right. And so that is a huge factor in the game. And the the ball is also tiny in indoor soccer. No, the ball's regular size. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I always thought it was smaller. Mm. The more you know. <laughs> We'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to have you back on at least one more time before this whole thing unfolds. Hopefully. And then the next show, a couple of weeks from now, uh, let's talk elections. Sounds good. All right. So you guys listen to this. If you haven't voted yet, go out and do it because the primaries are foot. All right. Thanks well, for coming on. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. Now, for the final segment of the show, we are going to tell you about all the great things to do this weekend and the one that's coming up afterwards. And who better to tell us here at the Columbian than Ashley Swanson? Yes. Yeah, the uh, nightlife and culture aficionado of the Colombian <laughs> newspaper. Something like that. Although this weekend it's all about going to Hawaii, so that's kind of fun. What? Yeah. You ha- okay, explain. So Who's it, going to Hawaii? <laughs> every end of July, it's the three days of Aloha and Hawaiian festival that happens in Estesort Park. Oh, I see. So it sounds more like Hawaii is coming to us rather than us going to Definitely. Hawaii. Definitely. Well, and Vancouver's always kind of had Hawaiian um, roots, if you could go that. Really? Yeah. I um, don't know this. Yeah. So um, 
way back when when the Hudson's Bay Company was managing their managing their fur emporium site on the Columbia River, um, there was a village outside of it that was basically where all the traders would come and, and stay a little bit while the ships were unloading and offloading different things. And a lot of um, the people on the ships were from the Hawaiian Islands. So there are Hawaiian descendants um, traced into the village, and there's a great uh, Fort Vancouver National Historic Site um, sort of history on that village. They've done more and more research into it. Man, Vancouver has been a melting pot through the day or through the decades. Yeah, That's it was crazy. it was the big trading post way back then, and with trade, you uh, have a lot of different people and cultures who come by. Yeah, no doubt. So, uh, flash forward, the Hawaiian culture lasts through the ages in Vancouver, mm-hmm. and it culminates in a weekend celebration. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. And it's the 15th annual festival that's been put on by the uh, Keiku Kui Foundation. I apologize for my pronunciation. I'm trying. But um, this is their 15th year that they've done the Three Days of Aloha, and it consists of kind of three big events. One, which is two days of uh, workshops at Clark College. Uh, that's Thursday and Friday. Um, so you can learn how to make lays, do hula, craft different like drums and other things. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, and they range mm. for all ages. So if you really want to kind of dig into the culture and history, it's a great way to do that. Mm-hmm. Workshops are around 40 to $90, and that includes lunch or breakfast or both if you mm. do an all-day class. So like, you're, are you in there like making a drum and yeah. you get to bring home said drum? Yeah, or learning a dance or learning some of the songs or language. Or, oh, cool. Yeah, so you just kind of enrich yourself that way. Yeah, yeah. And then on Friday night is the uh, Hapa Hola Hula. <laughs> I mean, That's Hapa, great. Hapa Ha Ola Hula Ha Ola Hula. <laughs> I don't think that last thing you just said was actually part of the word's pronunciation. No, but my tongue got tripped over itself. So yeah, understandably so. <laughs> um, vowels upon vowels, but yeah, mm-hmm. 5 p.m. Uh, Friday night, this Friday in Esther Short Park is a big hula competition where a bunch of different groups Whoa. will compete to appear at Saturday's big Hawaiian festival. It's gonna be a hula down. Yeah, and what's fun is um, hapaholoa is a type of hula, and it's kind of going to like the early 20th century of kind of what we think of classic hula songs and dance, which Mm. usually incorporates kind of English words with very Hawaiian rhythms, and it usually is talking about um, sort of the love and and stuff for for the Hawaiian culture kingdom oh rad yeah um so it's it's a very specific style of of hawaiian hula Mm -hmm. um but you'll have a bunch of different groups of a bunch of different ages competing and it's all free which is really fun and this is that for short yeah in the big pavilion uh, stage and then on saturday is kind of the big culminating hawaiian festival Mm. where you get um a bunch of different performances both from hawaiian culture and the wider polynesian culture Mm. Crafts, snow cones, um, kids games. Mm -hmm. Lots of color and vibrancy. Yeah, a way to kind of indulge in going to Hawaii without going to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And that's from about 10 to 7 p.m. on Saturday. Uh, It's all free. Bring a blanket chair and just kind of relax into the aloha spirit. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Interesting. I went, I literally stumbled into it last year. Oh, that must have been fun. Yeah, I was walking around Esther Short and I was like, why are there... Hawaiian shave ice. 
Lays. Like I was just like <laughs> stumbling into all this stuff and I was like, man, it is unusually Hawaiian here. And then <laughs> next thing I know, there's a bunch of people dancing up on the stage mm-hmm. and it was awesome. Yeah, it's a really fun, fun atmosphere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As you can tell, last year I didn't subscribe to our newsletter or our calendar that tells you all the great things it's to do in true. Clark County. Yeah. I was a huge loser in those days. It's <laughs> we'll, awful. We'll get you out there someday. Hey, no, I'm subscribed now. I'm hip. <laughs> I know what the kids are doing in Clark County. Great. So that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, what else you got going on? Oh, uh, there's uh, Battlegrounds Heisenhouse Vineyard hosts an annual sort of lavender celebration called the Lavender Festival. Uh huh. And so that'll be on Saturday from about noon to 9 p.m. Mm. And they bring a lot of local musicians in, um, artisans and crafters. But the big kind of draw is teaching you all the different things you can use. Uh, lavender for so you can use lavender in cooking yeah uh, way beyond just like having it fresh for the smell mm-hmm. um, and then it's just kind of fun if you haven't been out to Heisen House Vineyards to just hang out and um, explore kind of their estates and such mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, La Center is also putting on their big celebration. So La Center Our Days celebration happens um, in the summer and it's kind of the community's uh, way of saying we're awesome. Our days, like our days. Our oh, days. You are? Yes. Oh. Yeah. It is their days. Our oh. days. Yeah. I want to create an our days where it's just like a the big celebration of the letter R. Well, you might attract a lot of pirates. That's true. Or like, I feel like Sesame Street would be into something like that. Too. I would. I would <clears throat> see a Sesame Street pirate mashup. That'd be. That'd be fun. Yeah, I would totally be into that. <laughs> Totally. Um, what's kind of interesting is they've changed up uh, the center our days a little bit. Um, the parade used to be at Friday night. It used to be at Twilight Parade with everything glowing. And they've switched it to Saturday at 10 a.m. Um, so it'll be a more traditional parade through downtown the center along 4th Street. Oh, interesting. I wonder why they switched it around. I'm not sure, but they are keeping the Friday night street dance. So they're gonna be a par- there's gonna be a party in uh, the street with uh, local bands yeah. and a movie screening of. Is T Pain coming? No, T Pain is not coming Damn. to the center. Oh well, so much for a good time at the local dance. He will be at like the Roseland Theater in like September, I think. But oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that makes up for it. Oh no, I'm sorry. I confused T Pain with Two Chains. My bad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. God. I left me speechless with that air, that flagrant air of hip hop. I know. I must apologize to okay. T Pain and Two Chains. Yeah. Watch, they just mean tweet us in like three days. <laughs> and then the, the most difficult comp- uh, competition ever in the center will take place on Saturday at like a l- noon. Difficult competition? The beautiful baby contest. Oh, got you. Yeah. That is not a competition I want to judge. No. Uh, what do you what do you think would be more challenging to judge uh, as a judge the most beautiful baby contest or the ugliest baby contest Ooh, either way I, I I think you better be from out of town for, for both of those contests <laughs> yeah totally totally <laughs> but yeah so Low Center will have a car show we'll have a bunch of community activities and uh-huh. events and it's mostly free um, so definitely worth checking out if you're in the area and it is like 
festival season. So mm-hmm. all th- these things are happening the same days as the luau in Vancouver. Yeah, so it, it definitely is. It's summertime is the time people go out and do stuff. So it's you got to take advantage. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of competitions out there for your joy and merriment. Right, and speaking <clears throat> of competitions, the um, annual Washougal National Motocross um, competition is oh, happening on Saturday. Right. That'll be huge. Yeah. So if you don't know what it is, um, the Washougal Motocross National is uh, the ninth leg on the Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Championship. Mm-hmm. And it's really well known because it's been part of motocross since about the 80s. And uh, a lot of people love it because it's such a pretty course out in Washougal. Yeah, for sure. And so a lot of people can go and watch um, the pro uh, motocross cyclists go down the crazy dirt paths, do like a bunch of fun jumps and try to mm-hmm. try to beat out competition. This is a super popular race nationally. Mm-hmm. I met guys who came all the way from Denmark to go mm-hmm. see this thing. Oh yeah, it's a very big deal. Yeah. Um, and it's aired on national TV as well and mm. it, it draws a lot of pro. I believe they're racing in the 250cc and the 450cc. Yeah, interesting. Those, yeah, those big rigs. I don't think they call motorcycles rigs, no. Ashley. <laughs> no. Even though you just spent a week in Idaho, I can tell you didn't spend too much time on motorbikes. No. But, I mean, the dirt will be flying, and the it's a great, like, if you're a photography fan, it's a great way oh, to take yeah. some really fun photos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be loud. It's going to be muddy. Well, hopefully it'll be muddy. It'll be dusty. It's gonna be du- yeah, it's yeah. going to be dusty. Um, it's going to be smoky. <laughs> gates open for spectators at 10 a.m. on Saturday. Uh the races start around 1 p.m. Uh, it's about $40 to get in for the gate. Um, and then if you want to spring for, like, the pit pass, I think it's, like, 10 to $15. Huh. That's pretty reasonable. The pit, pa- the pit pass, that's, like, your opportunity to actually be literally down in the pit, get to see some of the riders and get mm-hmm. to see, like, mechanics working on the bikes. and Yeah. And the coolest thing about the Washougal race is it brings out a lot, a lot of local professional riders as well. Cause, oh, cool. Um, Clark County has a lot of really good amateurs and, and pros from the area. Very interesting. Yeah. Man, that, this is a huge weekend. Mm-hmm. Huh. Wild. Okay. So what about the following? Uh, the following is probably one of the biggest weekends which is the start of the clark county fair oh that's right man i can't believe the fair season is already here yeah that's crazy august 4th through the 13th so for you know two weekends or like 10 days it's just fair upon fair upon fair Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now if you are a true fair fanatic you will have already gone to fred meyers to get your free pancakes coupon for for the first day of the fair yeah yeah. yeah. Did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not aware, uh, the fair always does uh, kind of a big grand opening uh, pancake breakfast. Uh-huh. So if you get the voucher from Fred Myers, you can show up, I believe, around 8 a.m., get some pancakes, mm-hmm. and then start riding the rides and kind of get an early I have jump to, on that. I have to add a caveat to that because I actually covered the pancake breakfast mm-hmm. last year, and... While the gates might open at 8 o'clock in the morning, people start getting there way earlier than that. I talked to one couple that was there at 5, or not a couple, but a family, who was there at 5.30 in the morning to be the first in line for the pancakes. The people that were behind them got there at like 5.35. It was freaking crazy. Yeah. I mean, it is free admission, and it is one thing that, you know, you get to kind of tap your summer off with of, I got free pancakes at the fair, and I loved it, sort of. Totally. T-shirt. Totally. <laughs> is there anything more American than pancakes, uh, pancakes? 
pancake breakfast at the county fair. I don't think Especially so. Especially if you drove your truck there. Yeah. Well, maybe in, you washed it down with some deep fried Twinkies. Yeah. Yeah. And you sold you, you oh and you sold sold your heifer at the 4H auction later that week. It's true. No, and that's yeah. what's so much fun about the fair is especially this year they seem to offer so many different things to try to attract so many different people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have um, a new exhibit called Game On where they're just going to offer up a bunch of different games, everything from board games to video games to like Definitely played some video games of that last year. Yeah. Um, there's the Fair Con with like a bunch of different like comic book characters uh-huh. and and themes like that. There's the more traditional like um, cowboy boot camp and the rodeo and mutton mm-hmm. busting and pig races. Yeah. And plus, who doesn't just love seeing adorable farm animals? Exactly. There's the bee barn where you can meet the American honey queen, bee mm. queen. There's um, the dock dogs are returning, which is always oh, a that's fan a good favorite. One. Yeah, that's a good one. You can even sign up your dog if they're very athletic and oh, like really? to jump and splash and swim. Huh. Yeah. I would love to see someone enter their chihuahua into that or like <laughs> some really, like a wiener dog. That would be maybe they be maybe they're like super duper athletic. Maybe they're the like LeBron James of the, like a flea. Yeah. Jumps super far. Yeah, you never know. It's true. <laughs> they should have that competition, like the tiny dog. Mm-hmm. Like dog jumping competition. Maybe. Yeah. Well, that's cool. God, I feel like that is an event that needs no introduction. Clark County has a pretty decent fair, right. I will say. It's true. And it's the 149th version of the fair this year. Damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what's cool is even C-Trans offering their free bus shuttles, too, so you don't have to get Worth stuck it. in the parking lot for hours. <laughs> Worth it. Yeah. Yeah, see, um, there's a lot of nice benefits, and hopefully a lot of the things to i mean elephant ears come on man i think we've covered everything mm-hmm. so thanks for coming on and filling us in yeah or filling yeah i'm gonna say us because there are listeners all right we'll see you later <laughs> bye all right everybody that's our show this week thank you very much for tuning in and listening to it i hope you enjoyed it i hope you learned a few things too uh, especially for those of you living in vancouver uh, this city is going through some very interesting developments and a lot of uh, really fascinating changes. And I mean, in my personal opinion, I feel like we have a very unique opportunity as citizens to participate in the way this community is getting shaped. Whereas I think a lot of major metro areas have just kind of had uh, things fall into their lap and they're almost trying to play catch up with whatever the local issue may be. I think Vancouver is in this rare position where we get to we're getting to decide what the future of our city looks like in the immediate and distant future and you know i say that thinking of everything from what that water what the waterfront is going to look like to airbnb coming to town the number of apartments being built in the community and how our neighborhoods are getting structured all the way over to the oil terminal that is being proposed at the port of vancouver i mean there is so much happening around here that i really think it behooves us all to you know participate and be a part of it and uh, you know be good citizens and make your voices heard out there and i hope this show is giving you some ammo to be better informed and maybe even reach out to your representatives and tell them what you think about what's going on um, well, I would certainly love to hear what you think about our show. So please get a hold of myself or Katie and give us your two cents on how we're doing. If you have any good ideas for shows, we would love to hear them. If there's any questions that we haven't addressed that you think we should, let us know. 
we're not going to have a show next week, as I'm sure you guys have probably figured out at this point. But two weeks from now, we're going to have one. And we are going to have, I think, a very, very good podcast coming up after this. It is going to be right after the elections, right after the primary elections. So we're going to be talking a little bit about local politics. But then we also have, I don't want to give anything away yet, but it's highly likely that we're going to have an in, an interview with a very interesting guest. So please stay tuned and check it out. You can uh, reach out to us at podcast at Columbian.com. I think you know Katie and my email addresses. They're all over the website. You can also find us on Twitter. Uh, you can find the podcast on SoundCloud, on the Columbian's website. And please share our show. Tell your friends about it. Tell your mom. Tell your friend who drives across the I-5 bridge because they're going to need something to listen to because they're there for hours. Anyway, uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.